0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan is out this week. He is doing a father-daughter thing. We always value family time at the SGU. So, what can I do? <laughs> yeah, I the problem
0: is, no, don't spend time with your daughter. Do the show. <laughs> what if your boss <laughs> is your family? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, right. working around the clock over here. Um, so, Steve, yes. very, very important news over here. This is right. this is some big, awesome stuff. So, I, we did talk about this a little bit before. We we did drop the secret that we are taking the extravaganza, which is a, a stage show that the SGU developed about five years ago we started doing it but we we have a version two of the show and we're taking it on tour and you can go and find out what those dates are and start buying tickets right now you can go to theskepticsguide.org and uh, we have a link at the top in the navigation for our events or you can just scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll see the events section and you'll see our dates there. So the really cool thing about this is that what, what we're going to be doing is traveling to different cities and running our skeptical extravaganza and we're also going to try to schedule in a private show. So if you want to see us do a live recording – uh it'll probably happen over every weekend that we that we're on tour and then we'll be running the extravaganza between 1 and 3 times during uh any given weekend.
1: Yeah, so we got the first 4 dates locked in. We're negotiating for lots of other dates, but here are the first 4. Saturday, November 23rd, Los Angeles. We're also doing a private show that morning in LA, so you could there'll be a private show in the morning and a uh, Extravagance in the afternoon. And then on Friday, January 31st in Pittsburgh, Saturday, February 1st in Philadelphia, Sunday, February 2nd in Brooklyn. Uh, these, Those are all uh, Showtime at 8, Doors open at 7. And tickets will be on – by the time the show is up, tickets will be on sale. You could click the tickets button and you'll be able to buy them. And we're probably going to be working in a private show that weekend as well. But as soon as that's finalized, the, you'll be able to buy tickets for that as well.
0: Steve, did you know that if you just type in org forward slash extravaganza, you'll be taken to uh, a listing yeah, of go. all of the – there you go.
1: Directly to that page. Now, when we brought this up last week, we got a lot of email from people saying, hey, come to my city, come to my city. And we appreciate it. It's really great. So we so we created a mechanism to track all the requests to come to your city. If you go also to that extravaganza page, below the dates, you'll see an email sign up. So we're not going to spam you. We're only going to use this to tell you when the extravaganza is coming to your city or region. But also... The more people that we have sign up from your city or region, mm. the more mm. likely we are to go there with an extravaganza. So if you want to bring us to your city, get all the local skeptics to sign up and put, their, put that city into the location. And then we could say, hey, guys, we got whatever, X number of people on our email list from this city. Let's do an extravaganza there because we're booking through a touring company, right? We're not doing this ourselves. So we need to tell them where to book
0: us. Yeah, and if you've already sent us an email, please do just go to that page and fill it yeah. out. Just so we have you in the database at that point, and it'll make it really easy to get either get back in touch with you or at least let you know if we're going to come to your your city or town.
2: And Jay, what's that page again?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you should have been listening, Kara, because I said it very clearly. It's theskepticsguide.org forward slash extravaganza. Other important things going on, guys. This happens to be a very schedule-oriented uh, time of year for us. So you guys know, we've said this on the show already, that we're going to be at two different conferences. We're going to the conference, the Skeptics Conference in New Zealand. Then we'll be going over to Melbourne. And I was corrected. It's not Mel-ben. It's mel Melbourne. Melbourne.
2: <laughs> this is like the never-ending know, conversation. It doesn't stop. an <laughs>
0: endless loop of pronunciation, yeah. pronunciation. So it will be in Melbourne. Um, there's a conference there as well. So let me give you the information that you're wanting to know. So the New Zealand Conference is in Christchurch. That will be on November 29th to December 1st. And you can click the link on our website as well in the events section to get more details on that. We have a private show happening in New Zealand that'll also be in Christchurch and that'll be on eleven twenty nine.
1: Almost sold out. Almost sold out. If you really want a ticket, you better go there fast.
0: Then at Skepticon 2019, this is at the University of Melbourne, that'll be on December 5th to the 7th. There's going to be a lot of amazing speakers at that conference, including the SGU. And we will also be having a private show in Melbourne if you're interested, which is almost already sold out. So all the private shows that we have up right now are almost completely gone. You might get lucky, you can find the link to those private shows at skepticsguide.eventbrite.com.
1: So, guys, remember last week we talked about the new interstellar object? Yes. A yes. comet, a huge comet, and it's going to be visible from the southern hemisphere while we're there with close approach in early December. Wow. Now, Neat. However, it's going to be, uh, wow. going to be uh, Yeah, I looked at its, its path. It's going to be basically opposite the sun while we're there.
2: Oh. <laughs> now,
0: now, why does it end up that way, Steve? Did you have anything to do with this? <laughs> so it
1: it might be telescope visible, like at four in the morning. So someone told me, so, oh, I can calculate for you. Yeah, at four in the morning, you can see it with a telescope.
2: Great. Well, we'll be jet lagged. But it's got
1: to be a big one, you know, um, big <laughs> telescope. It's so, like, uh, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, so, but, but who knows? <laughs> who knows? You know, we are visiting a telescope while we're there, Maybe. Uh, but yeah, it's not. It's going to be a terrible viewing. You could just see the Earth is on one side of the sun while the comet is making its close approach on the other side. Nope, not good. Unfortunately, Bob's run of bad astronomical viewing luck. Holy, <laughs> well,
3: absolutely. Right, and even if it, even if it was like perfect viewing, it would be cloudy every <laughs> night, so we would have missed it anyway. I
0: mean, Bob, think about this. So so there is a. Uh, Meteor shower that happens on my birthday, August eleventh. The Perseids. The Perseids every yes. every every year. I might oh
2: yeah, say. I always watch that. It's so yeah. good here. Now,
0: Kara, check this out. Uh huh. Twenty years ago, Bob said, "Jay, did you know there's a meteor shower that happens on your birthday?" I'm like, "No, I got to keep an eye out for it." So Bob and I have kept an eye out for it for twenty <laughs> years and never <laughs> saw it. Okay. Because it's always your birthday.
2: It's is in August. always you said? Yeah, Shit. Yeah. Okay you guys, let's make a plan. Next year, come to LA. We'll drive to Fraser Park. It's an amazing dark sky viewing place. We lie on our backs. We do this all the time with our friends and I've always had a great experience you lie on your back and we'll watch the perseids and it's like every 30 seconds there's also a ton of people that come there from caltech from jpl from everywhere yeah. and they bring their big mamma telescopes yeah. we and we all lie on our back viewing. yeah it's a dark sky viewing it's amazing there's a huge group of people that you don't even know we lie on our backs and like every 30 seconds you just hear whoa did you see that one <laughs> Okay, it's John, so much I, I'm fun
0: because it's got to happen. Bob and I are like it's
2: pathetic at this point. It's gonna, oh, be,
3: it's o- it's gonna be overcast if I go. Just <laughs> <let me
2: know. laughs> it's never overcast. at, well, knock on wood. Oh yeah, um. I will break records. <laughs> Fraser Park. All right,
1: but we don't believe in magic, Bob. So, <laughs> all right, Bob, you're going to do another episode of Your Numbers Up.
3: Yes, welcome to Bob Your Numbers Up. This week, I'm covering another one of my favorite numbers, especially appropriate with Halloween coming in all six 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 everybody that? everybody knows six hundred sixty six 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 everybody knows that evil number right mathematically, it's not too interesting uh sure it's a it's called a triangular number six 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 is the sum of squares of the first seven primes kind of interesting hey, that's um,
2: pretty mathematically yeah cool. sum
1: of squares of the first seven primes, yeah,
3: yeah. Listen to every word and you can imagine it. Uh, 666 <laughs> is the sum of all the numbers of a roulette wheel, 1 to 36, cool. um, and even including zero and double zero. So, uh, so <laughs> that's kind of – that's that triple zero? <laughs> that's uh, – not that one though. So that's interesting but not too spectacular mathematically. But of course, culturally and religiously, that's where 666 shines, right? I mean – everybody knows that so uh let's let's get to the the meat yeah we we talked about this
1: back on episode what episode was that that was episode number <laughs> 661,
3: 661 I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh the book of revelation the quote um have to talk about have to mention this right uh it is let the one with understanding reckon the meaning of the number of the beast for it is the number of a man his number is 666 that's one of the tr- that's one way to translate it Keep in mind, though, that if you look at some of the oldest preserved manuscripts of of, uh, of Revelations and, and even other ancient sources, they will say six one six, not six six six. So that's not hmm. very that's not totally common knowledge. Um, it's kind of interesting. And of course, m- in modern culture, it, it's synonymous with the Antichrist and uh, or the devil himself or herself. Generally speaking, though, there's three ways to interpret this that, that are that are most common. There's uh, something called gematria, which is used to calculate uh, the number of world leaders' names uh, in order to match the number of the beast, right? Because you could translate between numbers and, and letters and words. Um, another one is to associate the number of the beast with the duration of the beast's reign, 666 days or whatever, um, and the symbolism with the Antichrist. So there's all that. But it, the fear is – you know, the, the visceral fear that people have over this, it's got, it even has its own phobia – hexacosi hexaconta hexaphobia Fear what? of 666. hexacosi hexaconta hexaphobia Fear <laughs> of 666. It's, inc- it's incredible. I, mean, I just I, have
1: a fear of saying that word.
3: Yeah, right? I right? I mean, how many people, if they got a license plate, besides me, how many people would be like, there's no way I want 666 on my license plate? I would, I would love it. But there are I people know, I would, feel They like- would not. They would just flat out, nope not going to have that on my license plate. I remember- My I,
2: ex-boyfriend, Bob, he yeah. tries to make sure, like on Twitter and different places, he's always following exactly 666 people. Ah, that's <laughs> He awesome. like tries to utilize that number in his life as often that
3: as possible. Well. That is really I, awesome. I love yeah. that <laughs> I remember when I had 666 um, uh, friends on Facebook, that was a special day. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember I once bought something and it came to $6.66 and the woman behind the counter spent a little while make, making sure it was six. She's like, oh, yeah, I, had a, I changed that price for you. you know, oh, my you know, god. Like I'm supposed to thank her. And meanwhile, I was mad at her. I'm like, really? I probably would have kept that receipt if you gave it to me. She did not know who she was messing with, She did with, not, Bab. did not. Uh, and now, ironically, in China, 666 can mean everything goes smoothly. Uh, the number six, and this is because the number six has a very similar pronunciation as as a character, which means smooth. So basically, in Chinese – it's 666 is smooth, smooth, smooth. You know, everything goes smoothly. <laughs> but the number, looking, at, thinking about the number though, in, in Revelations though, it's, it's, it seems more like a code than, than you may even, uh, have, have known. The original text has 666 written in Hebrew, which can more readily switch from, from words to numbers and vice versa, even more than ancient, ancient Greek does. And now remember the quote. Remember this. Let the one with understanding reckon the meaning of the number of the beast. The English word "reckon" comes from the Greek word for calculate or solve. So it seems that they're pretty blatantly saying, "Let's see if you can figure out this little code. I'm, I'm going to throw you away." And of course, it's because the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. I mean, vacuums weren't even invented yet. <laughs> but at the time, but at that time, Roman, the Roman Empire was hated, right? And, and Nero was the was the emperor. So you're not going to say, "Hey." Nero is a scumbag. You're not going to say that. You gotta, so you've got to make it a little bit difficult pe- for literate people. So, so Neron, N-E-R-O-N, Neron Caesar, t- transliterates from Greek into Hebrew, gives you 666. But you may say, hey, what about this w- 616 thing? The Latin spelling of Nero Caesar transliterates into Hebrew uh, as 616. So even, they even got that covered as well. So, so in my mind, if you had to come up with what, do, you know, what does it mean? You know, what does the number mean? I think it seems – I don't know if there's any consensus on this, but it seems likely to me that it was just a code for Nero. Um, mm-hmm. But who knows? Yeah, so, Maybe. So, Bob, does that make you scared? <laughs> I don't get scared. <laughs> I get even. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that's all I got on 666. This was Bob. Your number's up. Think of me fondly when your number's up.
2: <laughs> how's, that? How's, that, how's that exit? Outro. I, just, I just came with my new I outro. Do you like it?
3: it? I kind of like it.
0: I
2: like it. I love death jokes. Yeah. <laughs> good,
3: good. I knew I liked you for a reason.
2: So, Bob, you <laughs> mentioned uh,
1: the Chinese. They, but they are—they're not afraid of the number six, but they are afraid of the number four.
3: Yes,
0: it sounds
1: like the or, word for death.
3: There you yeah. go. There you go. Just because it sounds like it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. that that will tend to influence your attitude towards things.
1: So, guys, have you heard about this big red meat hubbub?
3: Yes. yes! Oh my yes. God! It's everywhere! Oh my God! Just give me good news,
0: Steve. People because are I'm, I'm about to go on a steak fina- You know, like a a bench, a oh, snake binge. It would be like uh, Kara <laughs> would be like vomiting just because she knows me. <laughs> this
1: is a complicated story, but I love it because it incorporates so many layers of what we talk about in terms of science and critical thinking and how to interpret the literature and how it gets reported. And I love the layers to this story. So, yeah. Uh, a new study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, not the Annals of Internal Medicine, but the <laughs> Annals of Internal Medicine. I may have pronounced it the other way at some point in the past. That's amazing. Annals. Now, I, now I'm like no longer sure which way to pronounce it. The Annals of Internal Medicine <laughs> did it was actually five systematic reviews of the literature concerning the consumption, the health effects of consuming red meat and processed meat. So, red meat operational definition: any meat from a mammal. So not you know, chicken or turkey or fish. And uh, processed meat is smoked, cured, salted, right? And not surprisingly, so we've been reporting on this literature occasionally over the years. I've been writing about it occasionally on science-based medicine or Neurologica. Um, so I wasn't surprised by this, but I think the the media had a little bit of a meltdown because it it, it seemed like the bottom line is not in line with the bottom line nutritional recommendations that, a lot of organizations have been making. Uh, but I think that it's that um, false dichotomy bias where you, you know what I mean? Like if one team barely beats another team, oh, they were an inevitable. They crushed the other team. They were so much better. In this case, like when we're looking at the scientific evidence, like, yeah, you know, the evidence is a little bit this way. So if you want to be careful, you could do this. And, and then if it shifts a little bit the other way, they go, oh my God, it's a reversal. or Like they don't know what they're mm-hmm. talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. But, okay, so obviously this is not new data. There's no new data. Uh, this is just a, a systematic reviews. But their ultimate recommendations do run against a lot of existing dietary recommendations. So let, let's start there. What do a lot of organizations say about whether you should eat a lot of red meat or processed meat? Uh, looking at the data, they say, well, there is some evidence that eating uh, a lot of red meat and especially processed meat may increase your risk of heart disease and may increase your risk of some kinds of cancer. And and it's plausible that it could increase those risks. So based upon this data, we recommend limiting your consumption of red and processed meat, right? Makes sense. But the the new researchers, first of all, they put together a consortium, right? This is a, a large group of experts. They carefully vetted them for conflicts of interest. And then they put together a final 14-person panel to do the systematic reviews and then vote on the final recommendations. They also set out to do uh, a high-quality systematic reviews that corrected for all the what they perceived to be the deficiencies of the existing research and reviews. So they weighted the studies carefully based upon the quality of the evidence. They looked explicitly at the effect sizes, and they also – one of the five reviews – so four looked at just the health effects of eating meat, and the other one looked at people's attitudes about eating meat. And then they they based their recommendation on uh, are people likely to reduce uh, their consumption of red meat if they were fully informed about what the research actually shows, right? That was kind of the approach that they took. Their ultimate recommendation for both red meat and for processed meat was – don't change what you're doing, right? There's no, there's no reason to, based upon the existing evidence, to decrease your consumption of red or processed meat. Uh, so that, again, it's a, that bottom line recommendation is different than what a lot of other people are saying. But yeah. they said that this was a weak recommendation based on low to very low quality evidence. They're not, <laughs> they're making a, what they're, they're characterizing their own recommendation as weak uh, because the evidence base is low to low quality, to very low quality evidence. I think that's the primary difference. So so in reality, in reality, if you, I, I read obviously their whole report, they're not really saying that there's no risk from eating meat, red meat or processed meat. What they're saying is we don't know if there's a risk. And given that we don't know, there really isn't a basis for telling people to change their eating habits. And that's the difference. Which so really, at the end, it's a it's a value judgment. You know, it's is it worth telling people? Should we be telling people to change their behavior when our own research is low to very low quality?
0: Steve, why it, the hell yeah. is the research so untrustworthy? This so is like, yeah.
1: So that's the next that's the next layer to this. So one layer is, you know, what should we be t- telling people based upon evidence? There's the precautionary principle which I think the previous recommendations were based on, which is there may be a risk. So if you want to be sure, this is what you could do, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the sort of the humility, non-interventionalist approach, which is, well, we really don't know. So we have no reason to tell you to change your behavior, same evidence, just different approaches to how that translates into a recommendation. But the other layer here is what is the quality of the evidence? And the, the, that, the evidence is, and we've talked about this on the show, even I think just last week we were talking about the different kinds of observational data, right? So there's observational data where you could be looking at a lot of people, but you have no control over yeah. variables. The best you could do is to – you can't control, but you can account for confounding variables. For example, uh, studies have shown – here's a quote from a study uh, that nicely summarized the confounding variables here – Subjects who consumed more red meat tended to be married, more likely to be of non-Hispanic white ethnicity, more likely to be a current smoker, have a higher body mass index, and a higher daily intake of energy, total fat, and saturated fat, whereas they tended to have a lower education level, were less physically active, and consumed less fruits, vegetables, fiber, and vitamin supplements. So that's a lot of confounding factors. Sure. Yeah. And now you could try to account for them, but damn, that's hard you know all of the downstream effects from all of those things that they're associated with especially when you get to low education level yeah right try to control for that confounding factor you can't do it basically and so you what you have is a very small absolute effect size which i like to i liken to a small signal right in the data and a lot of profound confounding factors, which is like noise. So what they're actually saying is the signal to noise ratio here is tiny. There's a ton of noise, very little signal. They also focus on the, they, on the control trials, which are much smaller. And they say that if you look at the control trials, there's no evidence for for risk. You, only Only the observational data shows risk, and those are confounded. Further, the absolute risk reduction is tiny. For example, if you look at they did you know, the dose response meta analysis, looking at all the data, and they found that for unprocessed red meat, the overall reduction in lifetime cancer mortality was seven fewer events per one thousand people. Right. So, if a mm-hmm. thousand people reduced their red, their red meat consumption by three servings per week, you would prevent seven cancers. Uh, and there's no statistically significant difference for eight additional cancer outcomes that they looked at. Further, there's no statistical difference for all cor- all cause mortality. So you won't live longer if you eat three servings per week or less. So that's that's a that's basically a small uh, effect size, very very small. The absolute risk reduction is tiny. So high high noise to signal you know ratio, or very low signal to noise ratio. Uh, small effect size, Uh, the lowest quality data is really the only data that shows a risk because there's a lot of very plausible confounding factors. The best quality data doesn't really show a risk. So they're like, yeah, the evidence is weak to very weak and uh, and we don't really have a solid basis to say change your behavior. Um, So Bob, why is that the case? Because you can't do the study that you would need to do to definitively answer this question. You cannot take 10,000 people and then randomize them to eat meat or to eat less meat, and then follow them for 10 years, right? But you you, you no could way... if you could
3: simulate them in a computer.
1: Yeah, but you, whatever. But you,
3: <laughs> you <laughs> Whatever.
1: Whatever. <you, laughs> but, but you have to know what the outcome is to simulate it. You know what I mean? You have yeah. to have, we can't simulate whole person biological systems yet. So I know yeah, you're being tongue-in-cheek. But just to put that out there, you yeah. can't really do that. Yeah, Um so it's just, it's not practical to do the kind of study it would take for everyone to go, okay, now we know the answer. And so we're we're left with ambiguous data that people can interpret in reasonable, different ways, right? And I basically gave you those two ways, the precautionary approach or the non-interventionalist approach. But the, the But everyone has to agree that, yeah, the data is weak, it's low quality, there's a tiny signal there. If you think that, if you want to eat less meat based on that tiny signal, that's up to you, go right ahead. But- it's hard to make any kind of strong recommendation based upon that.
0: So basically, there isn't legit data to make a logical, reasoned conclusion here.
1: Yeah, you. you yeah. So at, the, at best, you could make only a very weak recommendation. Now, what? Again, that some people might make the weak recommendation to reduce your red meat intake, and other people might say, "Well, it's not. It's probably not worth it. Do what you want. You know, do what makes you happy. Live your life."
0: This but what probably but what about the whole idea though like if you zoom out a little bit and we we go on to other kinds of um, mammal fat like from milk as an example mm-hmm. like does that apply to this as well because it's the same type of fat
1: No you can't you cannot extrapolate from meat to milk no you'd have to look at the data separately but I do think that oh, this boy, does we going get have, This Ooh. has implications for nutritional milk. research to be in general So a lot of the pushback on the conclusions of this study are coming from nutrition researchers. And here's a statement by scientists at Harvard who warned that the conclusions, quote, harm the credibility of nutrition science and erode public trust in scientific research. So this is the final layer to this story that I thought was fascinating. And, And, you know, by mild coincidence, I wrote about this just last week, I think. The, the idea that, you know, and this is something that I think we've learned over the course of our skeptical careers, when people find out how flawed science is in practice, they can become nihilistic, right? Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. Like, well, we can't trust anything. It's like, no, that's not what we're saying. You know, we're not saying you can't trust anything. We're saying getting to a firm conclusion is a lot harder than you think. It takes a lot more science than you think. That science has to be a lot more rigorous than you think. And it takes a lot more time than you think. But you do get there. But what we're, what we're trying to avoid is jumping to conclusions based upon low-quality preliminary evidence. Now, sometimes that's all you have, and you have to make the best decision you can with the data that you have, and it's a return—it's a risk versus benefit calculation. Uh, we also talked about this last week when it came to— um, like the whole fat shaming discussion, which we're going to get to a little bit more later in the show, actually. We're going to do a little bit of follow-up. But it's the same thing. It's like what's the quality of the evidence and how do we make decisions with limited evidence, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that the, the scientist who said this is going to harm the credibility of nutrition science. See, my approach is it will only harm a naive credibility of, of science in general or nutrition science specifically. It won't harm Someone who has a healthy skepticism, but also a respect for science, uh, right? So that's, I think scientific skepticism is have, not being nihilistic or naive. It's this nuanced position in the middle. And if you have that nuanced, critical thinking, scientific, skeptical position, no, this kind of analysis won't harm the credibility of science in general or nutrition science. It'll just put it into proper perspective. So the guy and from the Harvard's I- wrong? Absolutely. I think they're all completely wrong. And they're missing this very important point. To say that, you know, adding this layer of analysis to the data harms the credibility of nutrition science is, in my opinion, the equivalent of saying, let's hide from the public the truth that nutrition science is largely observational, and we really are not sure about our conclusions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because if if that's your approach— that's a setup for failure. For Be- sure. Because the because pseudoscientists are going to exploit it. it. Yeah. We have the internets now. Like there's no way you can get – <laughs> we're, we're, we're going through this pulse of, of people going from naive to nihilistic and we're trying to pull them back to the nuanced critical thinking in the middle kind of approach. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, this is great. This is healthy. Let's talk about what the nature of the evidence is and how we go from that kind of research to making recommendations about what people should do. And let's absolutely fully inform people about the difference between relative risk and absolute risk and the number needed to treat and what it means when you're, you know, a thousand people have to reduce their red meat intake by three servings today, maybe to decrease cancers by seven, you know. What does that mean? And to let let people make choices that are fully informed with a with a working knowledge of how science actually works. Because sounds like we, hard work. Yeah, it is. But the thing is, the, the <laughs> naive approach to science is fragile. You know, that kind of credibility is fragile. The the, the credibility that they're trying to defend is, is not robust. It's not. It's it's crack. It's crackling. It's eroding. It's crumbling anyway. Forget it. It's over that world is gone so yeah, this right. is the this is the white tower the ivory tower you yeah. know phenomenon in my opinion which is why i have no problem believing that a bunch of harvard scientists or yale scientists or whatever sort of have that attitude that's an ivory tower syndrome in my experience they need to understand how the public understands science and where we need to get the public in order to have a more secure relationship with science uh, right, so what would they say? Let's not discuss the weaknesses, the shortcomings of the research. I mean, that's
2: it's not a viable option. Yeah, what are we just supposed to pretend like? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's of crazy. course. I
0: mean, when you when you look at it, it's a knee jerk emotional reaction to something that that is actually you know almost a lesson in critical thinking. It, it, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that you know they look at it that way. I get. I mean, I look. I, I get the emotional appeal here because. I think I think part of it is it's kind of like the system shock of realizing like this information might be wrong and how much has been said about don't eat too much red meat and you know mm-hmm. I mean it's just been infused into modern culture. Everybody that's read anything about nutrition over the last twenty thirty years has read that and it's, yeah. it's it's sunk all the way in. I mean when I when I saw the headline of this article come out and I didn't have time to read it yet you know I'm scrolling through looking for news articles for Facebook. I saw the headline and my my gut reaction was two things at the same exact time. One was, oh boy, I hope this is true. I really hope this is true for lots of reasons, <laughs> not just personal and selfish reasons. And Believe me, that was there. But because of how much it means to just general health for people, right? It's just easier to eat healthy in a, in a way if you think about it. And the other thing I said was, oh, my God, how could they have gotten that so wrong? Like, it, but they it, didn't. That's the thing. The fact that you think that the previous
1: recommendations were so wrong is a failure of communication, not of the science. Although the, 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 there's the two parts to it. One is nutrition science is hard because you can't control what lots of people eat. You just can't do it. Mm. So we're, we are nutrition science is living in this sort of observational data world with all of the limitations, and, but that has to be properly communicated to the public. So, so it's, I do hope that this inspires the nutrition researchers to communicate a lot better about their evidence, mm-hmm. and I do hope that it does inspire more rigorous research. You know, Obviously, we, we're not going to get to that gold standard because it's just impractical, but you know, there, there, there's been a lot of criticism of the fact, and this is true just in science in general and medical science in general, but, you know, in nutrition science, there's a lot of low-quality crap research out there. Oh, yeah. And they garner headlines just as much as the better research or the more the, – the, the, the consensus. But I think part of the problem is – and this is like one of the most common interactions I have with the public where they express a negative view about science. It's – you guys have heard this as well – Oh, yeah, They'd be previously they said that, you know, coffee's bad, then it's good, and meat's bad, then it's yeah. good, and butter, walnuts are and, bad, and yeah, butter eggs. and eggs. Mm-hmm. It's like that's because we're turning this complicated, nuanced research into this false dichotomy. Yes, no, good, bad, eat it, don't eat it. Yeah. And that's all people hear. And when, and when it flips, it may have just eked back over the line. You know what I mean? Like the research hasn't dramatically shifted.
2: It's almost like epidemiological data at that point. It's, we're talking about so many. And also it's as if like all of our bodies and all of our, like our metabolism, our, our nutritional needs or whatever are like the exact same. Like we're all like robots. And that's not the case either. Like some of those people have diabetes and some of those people have high cholesterol. And some of those people, you know, it's different for them.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, if you have a lot of risk factors, you may not want to load one more bullet in the chamber, right? But here's the other thing is I I said, maybe the way we need to communicate to people. So let me as an analogy, um, pediatricians stopped telling parents to limit screen time and instead told them to maximize exercise time. And we'll see how that works out. But I, I like that, that that they're willing to change up their approach. And I think that the approach here, I would do the same thing to nutrition nutritionists. I wouldn't tell people to limit their meat. I would tell them to maximize their fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Because it, eating is to some extent a zero-sum game. People who eat more meat do eat less fruits and vegetables. And that's that's probably, if there is a health risk, that's probably actually where it is unless you're eating like a pound of bacon a day, right? And that's, uh, previous studies have showed that too. When you look at the health risks of eating red meat and, and processed meat, we've talked about this, you have to get to the ridiculous meat consumption end of the spectrum before you can get statistically significant differences in risk. But uh, for everyone else, I, I still think you could summarize all of the nutrition research for like your typical average otherwise healthy person Down to eat a varied diet. That's it. If you eat a varied diet, you're probably okay. Everything's going to average out. You're going to get all the nutrition that you need. You're not going to be overdoing anything. If you just have a varied diet, you're probably okay. And that applies here as well. Because if you're having a varied diet, including enough plants, you're probably not eating too much meat. You know what I mean? And as long as you're not overeating in general, right? So if you're not overeating and what you are eating is varied, you're good, and that's a very simple message to tell people. But you know, if you get lost in the weeds, it is not is counterproductive because the evidence is just not that granular. It really isn't, um, and then we have to be honest about that. And if we just focus people on what we can say with confidence, the message is simpler. It will not be flip flopping every five years. People won't lose you know faith in nutrition science or science because we're not doing this false dichotomy thing that's confusing. And it's actually closer to the truth, in my opinion.
0: Steve, can you overeat salad? You can, you can overeat anything.
1: Yeah, you know, but it's harder. It's a lot harder to, if you're eating a low-calorie food than if you're eating a calorie-dense food. It's a lot easier to overeat cheesecake than carrots,
3: right? Oh, yeah. Poison's in the um, dose.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So why does everything that tastes so damn good, like, bad for us? Like, isn't th- that just like, isn't that the irony of our reality? It's, it's because
1: horrible. we we evolved in a an environment where calories were the limiting factor on our survival, and so we have a taste for calorie dense food, fat, sugar, etc., carbohydrates. Yeah. Right, and, and modern, now
3: modern culture has weaponized sweet food. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <I know>. well, <laughs> absolutely. It's,
1: well, it's two things. One, Bob is correct. The food industry has weaponized our our tastes. And the second is that we live in a calorie-abundant, those of us in developed you know, parts of the world. We live in a—actually, in, it's increasingly the whole world, as we discussed last week. We live in a calorie-abundant world now. So it's just the opposite of what, of what we evolved in. And so we're trying to maximize our calories in a world where we have easy access to cheap, calorie-dense foods. And the result is an obesity epidemic.
0: It wasn't that long ago in the developed world, you know, turn of the century, where— Food wasn't readily available for everyone. I mean, people mm-hmm. were having problems buying food, you know, like big time, getting your hands on fresh meat almost impossible because even recently slaughtered meat went bad because we didn't have refrigeration.
1: Yeah, no refrigeration. You couldn't, no refrigerated cars. You couldn't ship, you know, bananas around the world. You know, absolutely. It, it was, uh, we, we take for granted that I could walk into the supermarket and get tropical, you know, fruit almost any time of the year. Yep. Fresh anything, pretty much any time of the year. And you said There's it a in few, le- A few seasonal things, but other than that, like pretty much anything, any And we take it for granted, but that's a very recent phenomenon and only in developed parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, KiwiCo.
0: Hey, guys, KiwiCo creates really, really cool hands-on projects for kids that make them learn about science. So let me give you an example. They have... Something called a cannonball launcher that you could build with your you know one of your kids. You could build with a niece or nephew, your neighbor. Um, You could even do this by yourself because these these projects are a lot of fun. Every time I do one of these projects with my kids, like I'm having fun too, and that's the point. The point is that your kids get to learn, you get to spend time with them, and you're enjoying yourself as they're as they're doing it, and they they're learning something. Like this cannon actually shoots cannonballs. (laughs)
3: It's, It's so cool. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. These hands-on projects are designed to empower tomorrow's makers, and they make the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, and artist.
2: So KiwiCo is offering you, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listener, the chance to get their first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics. That's Kiwico k i w i c o dot com slash skeptics. All
1: right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Jay, tell us about the upcoming electric battery apocalypse. I maybe I maybe uh hyperbolizing that a little bit.
0: <laughs> we need we need to come up with like a term like the bad apocalypse or something. Something with yeah. battery in it. Yeah, it's very likely that. Uh, that most of us who are alive today were alive to see the beginnings of electric vehicles you know i mean i still get excited when i see an electric vehicle on the road and over the next 5 to 10 years man we're all going to see them replace the diesel and gas powered cars it's going to be a very i think a very cool time to be alive to just see all of those gas powered vehicles go away gas stations are going to shut down we're going to see you know electric chargers are going to start to pop up everywhere. What's it going to be like? That's the other thing I think about. It what's it going to be like? Where are these what are the chargers going to look like? How many of them are going to be in a row? Where are they going to be? Are they going to be in the supermarket? Are they going to be at like replace gas stations? Like it's all these things that are going to have to happen. But what else is going on is that we're starting to really acknowledge that batteries are going to be a big recycling problem. So today we use we use these lithium-ion batteries to power all of our electric vehicles. And it's predicted that by next year, China will generate 500 metric tons of used lithium ion batteries. And by 2030, that's going to become 2 million metric, ton- metric tons per year. That is a lot of decommissioned dead batteries. Now, why? Well, they- they're
1: not dead. They're not dead. Right? Well, they're they're
0: going into they're the only mostly, they're dead. mostly dead. they're mostly dead. What does it mean? Yeah, they're not viable in a car anymore. But what what are they going to do? What what's going to be done with these batteries? Well, we got to talk about the recycling of them. So the problem is that most of these spent lithium ion batteries end up in landfills, like we said. They're not recycled. Why? You think well, Come on, we recycle everything. Well, you know, do a, start reading about recycling and just how bad the state of general recycling is because that's a whole different news item. But, but recycling these lithium-ion batteries, there's a lot of really useful materials and metals that are just thrown away that we don't really have a good process yet to reclaim. We, could, we can reclaim some of it, but not all of it and nowhere near as much as we should. So here, let me give you a few stats here. Australia is the only um, – Australia is recycling only about 3% of their lithium-ion batteries.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And in Europe and Europe, the U.S., it's less than 5%. So, you know, there's a lot of batteries. Now, keep in mind, guys, lithium-ion, this is what your phones are powered by. So it's not just gigantic car batteries. It's it's these, you know, can I say billions at this point? Billions of cell phone batteries out there that, that get recycled every two to three years. Um, it's believed that because manufacturers have been focusing on increasing the power of the batteries that we use today, they haven't been doing much R&D on the recycling te- side of things, which is bad. And because recycling technology is not that good, and because recycling technology is not that good, people aren't really caring about recycling the batteries because we're only getting 2 or 3%. We're only recycling 2 or 3%. We're, we're only pulling a little bit out of them. So what do we need here? We need to revolutionize the recycling technology that doesn't exist right now. We have to put their time and research in. Today's recycling process deals with a few things that are very troubling. One, it's – you have to have very, very high temperatures in order to melt down and extract some of the materials that are found in these batteries. And unfortunately, this process, of course, is super expensive because the amount of energy it takes to melt down all these batteries. The plants themselves are very expensive to build. They're very expensive to run, and they put out ha- they put out unfortunately harmful emissions. Yikes. This is like a rat's nest, you know? Like what, what why is it like this? Well, it's because nobody is putting the time and energy in to update the processes. The smelting process today is just dangerous. At the, you know, at the very least, it's dangerous and it's, it's polluting the atmosphere. Now, but so
1: is so is for um, mining and and refining the original Metals themselves, like the rare earths, are terrible in terms of yeah. The uh, whole the process is, is the not... whole process is terrible. So the re- recycling may be bad, but it's better than than doing it, you know, de novo.
0: And the, the even the batteries that make it to these recycling centers, we're not pulling out everything out of them that we should. Mm-hmm. So the industry has been aware of this problem. So industry specialists are now saying, no, that this growing problem has a silver lining. So they're saying in the near future, luckily things are starting to change. So pretty soon a lot of electric vehicles will need to swap out their first battery for a new one, right? So think about that. All of the electric vehicles that are that are being used today in a number of years, a few years from now are going to need their second generation batteries put in and we're going to have this wave of of batteries hitting the quote-unquote recycle market. We also, of course, see a huge turnaround with, like I said, the cell phone batteries. I mean, that, that's every two to three years people are swapping out those bastards. So startup companies are starting to develop better technologies for recycling with more scientists dedicated to the problem, including graduate students and postdocs that are newly trained in battery recycling. This is this is a thing. You could become a battery recycling specialist. We're also seeing collaborations between battery battery manufacturers and recycling experts. So, Things are starting to get to the point where we should start seeing some real progress in in, uh, recycling technology because of the numbers of people that are involved are going up. Now, this past January, the U.S. Department of Energy, also called the DOE, announced the creation of a lithium-ion battery recycling research and development center that is called the Resell Center. How cool is that name? Very very yeah, resell. clever, Resell Center. Uh, the Department of Energy has also launched a $5.5 million battery recycling prize that's hoped to inspire new companies and new technology to deal with the issue. So this is very much like you know, when you, you get like these million or $100 million prizes to achieve some amazing brand-new yeah. technological feat. Hey, by the way, uh, so driverless cars started this way. Yeah, with the X Prize. That's right. So last year the UK created a large consortium focused on lithium ion battery recycling, and this is specifically for electric vehicles, and is led by the University of Birmingham. Um so we are seeing an uptick. Um I think part of it is that uh, the general public knows nothing about it, so therefore it's not being discussed. The media isn't really covering it. But, you know, things are starting to slowly tick in the right direction. Let me throw some more stats at you guys just to fill your head with numbers that I find very interesting. There's 140 million of wet out there. There's 140 million of electric vehicles predicted to be on the road worldwide by 2030. 140 million. I would think it would be more than that, but, you know, in 10 years. They're saying that we should have upwards of 140 million electric vehicles on the road. 11 million metric tons of lithium-ion batteries expected to reach the end of their service lives between now and 2030.
1: So I have – and I've, I've read about this and I think this – I find this very compelling. Something much better to do with uh, spent lithium-ion batteries from cars.
0: I read about that too, Steve. I agree. Recycling them. Yes. Yeah, so, use them for the grid storage a what what does it
1: mean when a lithium a car lithium ion battery is at the end of its lifetime it doesn't mean it has no capacity the capacity may be 80% at that point yeah and but if you, or or 70% at worst but at 70% like you're not going to want to be driving around with it because your range will have decreased significantly even at 80% it'll go from 300 to 240 for example miles uh, so uh, you want energy density right in a car battery, but it but the grid don 't care it doesn 't matter for that seventy percent or eighty percent or even fifty percent is fine if it 's just sitting someplace and not you 're not driving around with it and you may get ten or twenty years out of a battery out, you know out of a that battery, even though it has diminished capacity it doesn 't really matter so uh we could arrange the industry so that batteries are first used in cars. And then go to the for grid storage, and then are, and then are recycled, right? So they, we get like they have a staged
0: uh, retirement, yeah. right? And I totally yeah. agree. You know, the infrastructure would be profound to say the least, right? You know, you can't just. You- you know, you're not going to be bringing these batteries into a room. You got to hook them up. You got to create the software and and all the hardware that has to go with it. But it yeah, is, but it's done. We have that already. There, you know, there's
1: already like this big lithium ion battery grid storage thing in Australia, right? I mean, so we can do it. It's that's not. And these are big batteries to begin with. It's not like your cell phone, right? So these are already big batteries, and they have lots of capacity. And you just connect a bunch of them together. And you've got grid storage, man, and batteries are actually a pretty, a, a very efficient method of grid storage. It's one of the best options. Yeah,
0: you know, what they and should these, do, Steve, they should have a drop-off center that is the grid storage center, right? So you drive your car in. They pull your old battery out. They, they, you know, it's right near where it's going to end up being put on a shelf somewhere to to be a battery for the grid. And then they just you could buy a new battery when you're there. It's kind of yeah, like getting- and
1: you get a you get a rebate because the the batteries are expensive, right? But if you could sell your battery to a company that's using it for grid storage, it will offset the price of upgrading your battery. Uh, you're getting a new battery. sure, but what would the price
3: car- be for? What would be, what would be the longevity of a, a spent battery like that in on grid storage? Would it get down to eventually 20 percent of its of course, previous yeah, over time? Uh, right. W- my question is, what, what what is that? How long would it last? When would well, when cares? would it actually be? Yeah, it's still, I'm still curious. So, how long it would last and how low it would go? When would it become? We won't useless? know. Yeah the, pr- yeah. the thing is, Bob. Like, I, I know that the variables matter. Where you know they hook the
0: battery up, and it I, I it depends on how many cycles. Like, it depends on how it's being used. Correct. Um, which has a big impact. I don't know. We don't have the answers to that right now. Somebody probably out there has an idea what it would be like. But even still, like Steve's right. We're going to get rid of a battery that's at, at 70%. Yeah, it's still get you know, many
3: years of good usage. Absolutely. For
0: sure. So check this out. The uh, The value of the lithium-ion battery market in 2022, only two years away. How much do you think it will be worth in 2022?
1: About
0: $100. In two years, they're saying that the lithium-ion battery market is going to be worth $70 billion a year. Yeah. <laughs> That's I mean, that is a number. massive industry, guys. Like, when you get into that level of billions, I mean, that's, think about the, the amount of batteries. And that's only in 2022. What's it going to be like in oh, it's gonna be 2030, massive. 2040, 2050 when, you know, gas cars are going to go away? We're going to, we're going to have a, uh, there's going to be a time where you're going to see like, oh, a few trickle electric cars here and there. That's going to be like, wow, well, most of the cars out there, you know, are battery powered. Then it's going to be like, I haven't seen a gas powered car in weeks. Yeah. Yep. Welcome to my world. That's going to be a wonderful day. Be be worth sextillions of dollars. That's right. You just wanted to say that word because it had sex in it,
3: Bob. Correct. You know me so well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Steve, there you have it. I recommend that everybody buy an electric car soon to help push the industry forward. And I also recommend that you eat a steak tonight in celebration.
3: (laughs) Ah. (laughs) that's a weak recommendation
1: based on very low quality
3: evidence Uh,
1: all
0: right can I say something about steaks real quick Uh, can I stop you no my wife (laughs) uh, for her mother's birthday on Monday night she bought a bunch of fillets and she didn't cook them like most people cook fillets she cooked them like a regular New York strip steak, meaning that she we, she salt and peppered them and we seared the hell out of them on the grill. And I'm telling you that that was one of the best steaks I ever had in my life. Really? Was treating a, yeah, because when you treat a filet like a steak, like a regular steak that you would cook instead of – I've had filet cooked in so many different ways, but I very rarely have ever had someone just straight up cook it like a steak. So she decided to cook them like regular steaks and it was one of the best steaks I ever had in my life. So go do this right now except Kara.
2: Why? Kara eats meat. I hate meat. I'm just a bad Texan and I like my steak well done. That's mm.
0: fine. Well done steak is fine. Just don't put ketchup on a well cooked, a good steak. Oh, I would never oh,
2: put, man. I don't People put ketchup do it, on anything. Man. I hate People ketchup. People do it. Oy, gross. Hate? Hate. Like, yeah, there's few things in the world that I hate and most condiments fall into that category. Most condiments? <laughs> I, yeah.
1: I do not put ketchup on steak. That, to me, that's an abomination, but it does go well on a hamburger though. Of course. Absolutely. Would yeah.
3: Or and I'm eggs not a fan. and scrambled eggs and mustard is mm. poison.
0: Okay,
1: mustard is
3: poison. Mustard I'm with
0: you. is amazing, and honey mustard is most multi- uh, multi- of the gods.
3: Honey mustard, yes. Thank sriracha
2: you. all the way. Yeah, rocks. All those things are sriracha. I have <laughs> sriracha, sriracha
3: every morning on my eggs. Sriracha. <laughs> eggs. There isn't yes. a condiment Big out pop. there I don't like. I
0: name, Ooh,
2: you you can't, like mayonnaise?
3: I love mayonnaise.
2: Oh, mayonnaise is the worst one. And, and I said
0: mayonnaise, and you say mayonnaise.
2: I say mayonnaise because yeah. mayonnaise makes it sound even grosser. It does. You're me. right. It's, it's
0: more greasy. Mayonnaise. You know what I mean? It's a like, Greasy what? mayonnaise.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I love barbecue sauce. Oh, Bob, barbecue sauce. Barbecue. I do like barbecue sauce. I'm yeah. a Texan. Oh, I mean, there's some things. Well, do you like a rub yeah. then? If you're a real Texan, you don't want sauce, you want the rub.
2: I like it. You know, I like my barbecue many ways. Yeah,
0: me too. Yeah. Steve, God bless your heart. Go on. Right. <laughs> <Frank. laughs>
1: All right, Kara, so tell me what Bronze Age babies were eating.
2: Okay, this is a really cool study that was published in Nature and it comes with fun pictures. <laughs> Ooh, That's picture. my favorite part. Yeah, yay, pictures. So look them up. Look up these pictures. A lot of people are covering this right now. Apparently, these archaeologists, maybe some paleoanthropologists, individuals who have gone out and looked at ancient grave sites have found some interesting pottery over the years in these grave sites, and they've always wondered what this pottery was. They basically look like tiny pipes. They're like vessels. So there's kind of a cup situation. And then there's a piece that's been pulled off of it that has a hole in it. And historically, these researchers were like, what did they use these for? Maybe they were like drinking cups for old people who couldn't use their hands anymore or for people who had disabilities. But it's it's long been theorized that they're like sippy cups, kind Mm -hmm. of early sippy cups, Bronze Age and even earlier uh, Bronze and Iron Age sippy cups. And But they never really could say emphatically that that's what these things were. This new study is an interesting one because they used a bunch of really um, kind of intense chemical analysis to look at the remains of, what would you call it, like residues that were on these cups because these were not glazed, this pottery. So, of course, the the holes in the pottery, the pores, were able to absorb whatever was in them. And they were able to actually get enough, mostly I think it was fat globules, like lipids, that they were able to actually test in order to see, you know, what the content was here, how much fat was in it, um, what were some of the sterols that were in it. And they found, this is super interesting, that these lipids match the chemical signature of ruminant milk. They specifically can point to it being milk and milk from ruminants. They don't know which ruminants. They don't know if it was cows or goats or sheep, but they know it wasn't pigs and they know it wasn't human. So that really opens up an interesting conversation about like little kids like 3,000 years ago, upwards of 9,000 years ago, because they have found some of this pottery like a really long time ago, were probably getting a supplemental diet of milk from domesticates, which is really fascinating. I mean, these are Early societies where hunter gatherers were settling down and using agriculture. Now, the researchers don't think that babies weren't drinking breast milk, but they're you know they've long been interested in like when did ancient people start supplementing breast milk? Because we know that in modern views, around six months of age seems to be the time when the diet requires more than what breast milk can provide. Um, so, breast milk is a is a pretty whole food. And under six months of age, that's pretty much all a baby needs to grow. But then over around six months of age, that's when supplementation usually starts with, um, you know, baby food or cereals or formula or things like that because other um, the kids start to teethe um, and that's when weaning starts. Doesn't mean that most kids are weaned by six months. A lot of kids continue to drink breast milk for years even, but usually their diets are supplemented at that point. So the question was in like Neolithic Europe, these were actually German caves kind of in the Bavarian region where they found these graves. What were these kids drinking? And uh, based on this chemical analysis, they were like, oh, interesting. They were drinking ruminant milk. And the sippy cups are really cute. They actually oftentimes are animal-ish by design. So they might look like cute little animals. Then this little spout comes off so that the the baby could suckle or the, um, the toddler, the infant or the toddler could suckle it. Um, the two graves where they were able to get enough of the residue to do the analysis um, were, I think one of them was a one-year-old and the other one they couldn't quite type, but I think it was um, between a few months and a few years old. And they found these within the grave. So they were being buried with the vessels. So it's actually, um, I think, inspired other conversations from people about, A, was this typical... Or was there a reason that these kids needed this supplementation? You know, did mom die? And so they weren't able to breastfeed. And maybe did that lead to an early death? Was there something wrong with these children? And that's why they ended up dying so young. And um, the feeding behavior was somehow tied to that. It's kind of impossible to know. But it does remind me a little bit of what we talked about last week about survivor bias, except this is like the opposite. (laughs) It's like all we know is based on babies in these graves. And so to say that this was some sort of typical thing... For little kids is hard to say because all we know it's based on these kids that died very young. But it's a really interesting thing to know that, like in Neolithic ages, kids were drinking supplemental milk and they were drinking them out of like these prehistoric adorable little sippy cups. Yeah, oh. yeah, you got to look yeah. at the pictures. They are, they are, they're cute. really cute. Yeah, and the design is actually really smart. Obviously, they didn't have lit or maybe they did have lids and they were broken. I don't think anybody knows There's
1: one of them. It looks like the kids are drinking out of a chicken's ass. <laughs>
2: Jesus! What? Well, yeah, because they have like animal shapes, yeah, the, and then and then there's a spout that comes out, yeah, so the they spout- must have put the spout in the back, <laughs> Just in the back, yeah. <laughs> And so it's really cute because there's even a quote in this, I think it's a Smithsonian article um, from one of the, uh, you know, the writer, this is common with science reporting is that you'll look at the study and then you'll reach out to the study authors or people who are involved in the studies, and you'll ask them direct questions like, and one of the researchers actually put um, something really cute, like that the second reason that they think um, that they used this shape was that it made their children smile, you know? Yeah. It got them to drink because they were, like, cute little animals. The same way that our sippy cups have cute little animal faces on them.
1: It's also interesting how hard it is to, like, really know, like, mm-hmm. really infer an ancient culture from little clues left behind. There's yeah. so many different ways you can make sense of it. And without context, it may, it may be some silly little thing because culture is so uh, interesting, you know? Um, yeah, you have to make a lot of assumptions. Could be some quirky thing that, like, it could have been a religious belief or some kind of superstitious mm-hmm. belief or whatever. They, who knows what this could have been? A ritual, like, yeah, it might not assuming, have been a typical thing. Yeah, assuming that it's got some like direct pragmatic use is not always a good assumption. Yeah. All right, Bob, you're going to finish off the news section with uh, a, some speculation about Planet Nine.
3: Yeah, this was fun evidence seems to point to a large planet in space far beyond Pluto a lot of people know about that it could be planet it could be planet 9 but some researchers now think it could just as well be a freaking black hole yeah what is that can what? you imagine that so this is from the archive preprint server which uh, we often reference on the show um this is from astronomers Jacob Schultz of Durham University and James Unwin of University of Illinois at Chicago. Sure, obviously finding another another big planet in our solar system would be a huge discovery. Um everyone, so many people have mentioned, you know, how bum they are that Pluto was demoted and that all that hubbub about Pluto and should it be a planet, is it a planet, dwarf planet, blah blah blah, all this stuff. And so people people are fascinated by the idea of, you know, finding another substantial clear planet in our solar system and that, that's exactly what planet 9 represents. So so why do we think I'll do a quick review of why we even think there may be a, a planet 9 out there. Uh you need to think about the distant trans-Neptunian objects that are that are out there beyond uh, Nep- Neptune objects that are, you know, definitely sm- on the smallest side, but there's so many of them out there. And that's one of the reasons why we demoted Pluto is that there's so many objects out there, some fairly hefty, that, um, you know, we would have ultimately had to have a solar system with, you know, scores or even hundreds of, of planets, which is kind of silly. So they found a bunch of these trans-Neptunian objects that were oddly arranged and moving with similar orbital alignments. And that and, and their tilt suggested... That a larger mass was probably causing their their odd alignments. And that that would be something on the order of 5 to 10 or even 15 Earth masses. So something huge could explain what's going on out there. Uh, But we're talking really, really far, far away. We're talking 400 to 800 AUs, astronomical units away. That's 10 to 20 times more distant than Pluto. Truly uh, far, far away. Um, so, but, of course, once that evidence uh, was found and bandied about, people have been you know the hunt really has been on looking for this planet nine but hey is, could it could it not be a rocky planet May, could it be something else? Could it be uh, what they 're calling as these primordial black holes uh, so what are, what are they what that's we've, I think i don 't think we 've mentioned them too many times on the show a few times here and there uh, these are just these are black holes, but they 're old, relatively small. They emerged soon after the Big Bang, so quite old. Can't get too much older. Um, And they would—the idea goes—that they would have formed uh, as a result of density fluctuations in the very early universe. Those primordial black holes that were very low mass uh, would have already evaporated in a a burst of Hawking radiation after a period of time. However, that there—there probably still would be larger mass primordial black holes that still exist. That would be. uh, you know potentially even eva- evaporating now but but still existing um but that all said that these have never been directly observed um we are not you know we're not certain that they exist, but there is indirect evidence for primordial black holes uh there have been many what we what they call micro lensing events where a star not a galaxy as you would as you would see with gravitational lensing but uh, a star uh temporarily brightening. Uh, as a as a an apparent massive object passes in front of it, and the uh, the effect on space time acts like a magnifying lens, which, which magnifies the light that hits the Earth if it happens to be in the sweet spot of this lens. So that that discovery, that idea that that they have spotted a lot of these, um, and not outside of our galaxy, within our galaxy, it seems to imply that a population of small uh, primordial black holes could be out there and not. That far away within our own galaxy, or perhaps even closer, so what 's the evidence then that planet nine is a is a is a primordial black hole you know you, wh- wh- Why would you jump to that conclusion well, if you run the numbers, you look at the models that these researchers looked at, it suggests that the primordial black hole with a mass of about say six earth masses and the size of a tennis ball by the way, would cause the similar Orbital behavior in the population of trans Neptunian objects that we're seeing. Um, So, but, and that makes sense, right? Gravity is gravity. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, if it's the size of 10 Earths, um, you know, in diameter or whatever, or if it's the size of a tennis ball, if it's the same gravitational if it's the same mass then the gravitational force would be the same and the you know the orbits of of, of uh, planets nearby would be similarly affected just like the sun if the sun turned into a, a one solar mass black hole right now it would be quite small but we would still orbit it our earth's orbit would not change because the the gravitational attraction would would be the same so it's not really saying that much to say that hey you could put a black hole in the spot of where Planet 9 would be, and it would still have the same impact on the trans-Neptunian objects that are, that are in weird orbits around it. So so that's one thing that they have. So the other line of evidence that they talk about is that scientists have been looking at uh, optical and infrared uh, observations, looking, searching for Planet 9, and they've not found it yet. So one way to explain that the lack of a, of, a, of a discovery would be primordial black hole because you would not be able to detect it optically or with infrared uh, observations. Uh, So that's another line of evidence for why this, you know, Planet Nine could be a primordial black hole. Um, Is that enough evidence? Well, it's not a lot of evidence. A rocky world that's that far away is going to be very difficult to find no matter what. Just because we haven't really found what we haven't found yet doesn't mean it's not there. Um, And uh, just because, you know, a black hole could Could replace it doesn't mean that that it's a black hole. So 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 it's a little bit weak, but it's interesting. So considering though that primordial black holes seem more common than we thought previously, and the fact that discovering a black hole within our solar system would be such an amazing discovery, I think it's well worth it to actually look for this primordial black hole. Uh, You know, I'm not saying we should stop looking for a a rocky world with you know five to ten Earth masses, but also you know, look for a primordial black hole as well, because hey, why not? It would be one of the discoveries of the century. Can you imagine uh, sending a probe to a black hole within our solar system? Sure, it would take a while to get there, but it wouldn't take thousands of years. It would take within the life within the lifespan of people alive today. We would actually have a probe checking out, doing a close encounter with a black hole. Sure, it's tiny, but it's still a black hole. That would be cool. I think it's well worth it. But the fact that it's worth it doesn't mean much unless you actually have an idea. Well, how would you detect it? What would we do, and how expensive would it be? So the answer to the answer to that is that that a black a primordial black hole would have a very different different signature than a, a rocky planet that far away and and that big. So the researchers hypothesized that 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 such a black hole would be surrounded by a halo of dark matter, and that this uh, hypothesized annihilation of dark matter particles would generate radiation like uh, gamma rays that would be imminently eminently detectable. So so hey. I say, what the hell? This is, this is such a cool idea. It seems plausible. Uh, some astronomers think that it's like, think sure, it could be a black hole, but it could also be a huge taco. I mean, one, astron- <laughs> one astronomer was like, kind of like jokingly saying that. But, but I say, it, it, you know, it's, it's got a good combination of plausibility and the wow factor that, you know, sure, throw, you know, throw some money at this and, and, and look at it. And who knows? If we found it, the discovery would be amazing. So that's my take on it.
1: Yeah, but I hate the fact that the primary line of evidence is a, is a lack of evidence. Like, well, we're not seeing anything
3: that fits what would you know would happen if it was a, a black hole. That's true, but hey, primordial black holes seem to be much more uh, common than, than we thought. From that, from that line mm-hmm. of evidence of of, of finding those uh, microlensing events, so that's a, so that's the other little bit, and it's that's not incredibly strong either. Yeah, but uh, but it's well, an we interesting need idea. we need some positive evidence. We need some positive. Yeah, evidence. we do, we do, and uh, and let's see. You know, this is preprint. Let's see what some of the other astronomers say when they actually you know, when they, when it's peer reviewed. But it was just a fun. It was a, a yeah. fun idea. It would be yeah, so yeah. cool to find a black hole in our solar system. Oh my god! So I mean, you awesome. think it
0: would be cool? I think it's moderately terrifying.
3: <laughs> no, Jay, this is so tiny. This is so tiny that we we have nothing to worry about. The thing that thing's not coming into the inner solar system. We'd be safe and it would be a, a laboratory that we will never probably ever ever get a chance. I mean, when are you ever going to have a, a chance to examine a black hole that is that close? You, now you you'd have to probably have to travel many many light years for something like that But couldn't it theoretically, I mean, couldn't a black hole like couldn't it just eat up our whole solar system? No, no, no. No, I mean it's why? I mean it's this this is tiny. Jay, this is as big as a tennis ball. We're not talking, you know, a s uh you know, a supermassive. And black remember, hole. black
2: holes don't suck. They stay where they are, right? And so only things like around the event horizon are they gonna have fall in. It's the same
1: gravity as anything right. else of the same mass, mm-hmm. it's just you can get closer to it because it's smaller. But Jay, like if this thing is a planet, you know, it's the same gravity, it's an object, you know, the you only fear yeah. that's not gonna go roaming around the solar system destroying everything. Neither is a black what, hole.
0: But wouldn't a black hole just continuously
3: get bigger the more that it, it pulls in,
1: just like a planet?
3: It's not really pulling. It's not pulling really anything in. I mean, it's it's in orbit. It's in a stable orbit around the sun. And there's, there's, it's a, sure it's impacted the orbits of other trans-Neptunian objects. But it, there's no accretion disk. It's not like sucking in um, matter. But if it did, it'd be kind of cool because then it would probably be be more, much more detectable. But uh, yeah, Jay, don't worry about, it, dude. We're cool. We're good.
0: If you say so. <laughs> I'm cool. You cool? Yeah, I'm cool. All right.
1: So you can eat meat. We could reuse those batteries
0: and we don't have to worry about a black hole. All right, Jay, it's who's that
1: noisy time?
0: Okay, last week I played this noisy. The last part always makes me laugh. What in hell? Hey! Uh, any guesses,
3: guys?
2: Some sort of chant?
3: Is that throat singing? Yeah, yeah the, those those monks that hit, them, hit themselves on the forehead, with the uh, Monty the, Python?
0: Nope. It is not the Gregorian chant. No, this is this is a, a fun one, but th- you guys are not correct. I got so many emails from people w- guessing that it was some type of throat singing. So let's yeah. get into it. Okay, a listener named Jason Slesky wrote and says, was this week's noisy the sound of a gyroscope? I hear the sound of it being cold, then running, and then falling at the end. No. Nope, this is not a gyroscope. And I, I don't know if I've heard one recently to make a comparison. The next listener, Noel or Noel... Ruppenthal said, Hey Jay, I'm guessing this week's noisy is an Inuit throat singing something. No. No, it's not throat singing. This is throat singing. That is throat singing. Now there's lots of similar. There's lots of different types of throat singing. I have come to uh, find out. This is not it. And I, but I do know why you said that, and you'll find out in a minute. Uh, Elizabeth Shepard Reed wrote in and said, "Hi, Jay. Uh, we think it's Gampanbula from Yothu Yindi playing the didgeridoo, possibly using a PVC pipe. That is also incorrect. And this is PVC. This is that person that you mentioned playing a didgeridoo." <laughs> It is similar, but it's not a didgeridoo. But we do have a winner, and the winner is Brett Newton and Brett Newton. I can't say the letter T for the life of me. Brett said, this week's Who's That Noisy is, and the guy didn't win. I'll tell you that Brett did not win because he sent me the pronunciation of this man's name. But it is something awesome about him. This week's Who's That Noisy is Oystein Bajvik, and that is with someone writing it out so I can pronounce it. That's how, that's how interesting this person's name is. He's playing his composition Fnud, <laughs> which is Norwegian for snowflake. That's snowflake in Norwegian. I've heard him perform this piece twice uh, and can attest it is, it is acoustic with no electronics. This is indeed someone playing a tuba. What? And they are singing, yes, they're singing or humming while they're playing the tuba. Now, this is actually called polyphonic or multiphonics. Um, and I know it sounds kind of simple that the person is singing and playing a, a wind instrument at the same time. Multiphonics can actually mean lots of different things. But in this instance, it is a person playing a tuba and they are, they are humming and singing into the tuba. So let's take another listen. Pretty cool, huh? Yum, 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 yum. I know. It's like it's very unearthly in a weird kind of way, but as soon as I, I heard what it was, it made sense. It kind of clicks in your head. So good job, Brett, and thank you, Les, for sending that one in. That was that was a fun one. You could also go see this person, uh, the guy whose name I, I had trouble pronouncing. Oystein uh, Bajvik. you can go see him play that easily on YouTube if you look it up. Multiphonic. Take a look at it. I have a new noisy for this week. The new noisy was sent in by a listener named Orlando Zapata. I promised you guys that if I played a noisy that was data coming from somewhere that's being interpreted into noise, this is one of those.
2: Hmm, Okay.
0: Talk about science fictiony. Yeah, that's cool. I get a lot of these, like this type of thing, and this one is, is that cool. That's why I picked it. So I hope that helps you. You can email me at wtn at org if you have any guesses or if you heard anything cool this week.
1: All right. Thanks, Jay. One quick uh, question is flu season. We're getting into flu season in the Northern Hemisphere. So this is, we start to get these flu, flu vaccine questions. This one comes from Iyal Sion from Israel. And he writes, in the past, I didn't get a flu vaccine. I get pretty nervous around needles and have fainted in the past when having blood drawn for testing. So I didn't want to put myself in that position. I also thought that I'm only affecting myself by not getting the vaccine each year. My question is, is there a herd immunity factor to flu vaccines? Thanks. So the flu vaccines are optional. They're not part of the routine schedule, uh, but they're highly recommended. They are variable in their efficacy, as we say every year. Essentially, we take whatever virus is circulating, flu virus is circulating in the opposite hemisphere the previous season, and then we say, okay, that's probably what's coming around in, in the opposite hemisphere as their winter season approaches. So the southern hemisphere is just getting over their winter season. So we're, whatever virus is coming from them, we're, we're going to make vaccines against in preparation for the northern hemisphere flu season. Um, but sometimes, you know, the, the question is how much does the flu virus the strain mutate in between? And we don't know. We, we we do the best we can. We cover the likely strains to be that'll be the most likely, you know, most popular that season. Uh, sometimes we could be eighty, ninety percent accurate. Sometimes it's forty, fifty percent accurate, uh, or somewhere in between. I, I'm early indications are that this year, the two thousand and nine, the twenty nineteen, twenty twenty flu season. It's not going to be great coverage, unfortunately. But we'll see. It's a little too early, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't get it because even like it's 40%, 60%, that's still better than 0%, right? You're still statistically better off getting the vaccine. But getting to the question of herd immunity. So technically, herd immunity... When we talk about that, we're saying that the vaccination rates are high enough to prevent yeah. spread, prevent person-to-person spread, so it, it will prevent an outbreak. There aren't. Isn't enough... it
2: high, like ninety-five percent, or it's something? It's like ninety-five percent.
1: Depends yeah. on the illness. Depends on the illness. But a good rule of thumb is something in the ninety-five, ninety to ninety-five percent range. Uh, we're we're just not there in, with flu vaccines. We're not high enough that that the flu will not spread because so many people are vaccinated, but. That doesn't mean there isn't any advantage to other people when you get vaccinated. And there is good evidence that when you get vaccinated, you protect the people around you. Yeah, gotcha. And most people probably have someone in their life, basically an older person or a younger person, right? If there are kids in your life or older people in your life, which is, let's face it, is most of us, even indirectly you will be protecting them by getting the flu vaccine. There's good evidence for that. There's also mm-hmm. good evidence that if you, are, if you work in a job where you get exposed to a lot of people, especially sick people or older people, like, you know, healthcare workers, there's a massive advantage for getting the flu vaccine. That's why it's basically mandated now among-
2: Oh, interesting. What or, about
1: air, airline employees? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Absolutely. If your job involves a lot of exposure to people, get the flu vaccine. You'll protect yourself and you will protect other people. Even if it's not that effective, of course, the more effective it is, the better. But you know, any effectiveness is still better than nothing. And the flu vaccines are extremely safe. You know, serious complications are in the on the order of magnitude of millions to one against. So, all right.
0: So you're saying don't
1: get the vaccine. Get the vaccine. Get (laughs) your flu vaccine. Get get, that's my bottom line forced choice recommendation. uh, Is get the vaccine. So, So. the, i guess my answer is yes and no it's not doesn't rise to the level of technical herd immunity but it does protect the people around you and that uh, and that's why you should give even if it's not for yourself you should do it for, for for anyone who comes in contact with you all right guys let's move on to science or fiction
3: it's time for science or fiction
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. One I just make up, uh, sometimes out of a whole cloth, but usually I tweak an, an existing item. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake a We have three regular news items This week, no theme. Are you guys ready? I'm always ready. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Item number one, a new paper demonstrates how it is possible to have negative energy. Item number two, scientists have created nano-engineered silver, which they claim is 42% stronger than the strongest steel alloy. And item number three, a new prototype bionic leg has detailed sensory feedback sufficient to allow users to walk blindfolded. Kara, go first.
2: Okay, a new paper demonstrates how it's possible to have negative energy. Well, that is the vaguest, most meaningless sounding.
1: Let me explain to you what that term means to physicists.
2: I, oh, okay, I totally good. Totally know what
1: you mean. <laughs>
2: okay, yeah, Padra, what I mean.
1: so it doesn't mean like bad vibes, right? It means <laughs> yeah. it means that a a particular place in space could have less than zero energy. You could actually have negative energy,
2: so what? less than zero.: How is that?: It' have possible.
1: less than no
2: energy at all.: well, That's the whole point of the paper.: That's right? the whole point of the paper. yeah. <sighs> OK. All right, <laughs> scientists have created nano-engineered silver, nano-engineered silver. So they use nanoparticles to make the silver, or they make the silver at the nano level nano-engineered. I don't know. Which they claim is 42% stronger than the strongest steel. Is that supposed to say alloy? A new prototype bionic leg has detailed sensory feedback sufficient to allow users to walk blindfolded. Well, all of these seems seem reasonable. Prototype bionic leg. So it's a prototype. Which means that it's only one person has been able to or only one person needs to have been able to walk blindfolded for this to be okay. Or a few, but it's not being or mass few. produced on okay. it for the commercial yeah. market. Right. It's on the commercial Detailed market. Detailed sensory feedback. So that would probably be things like pressure and just some sort of like knowing their surroundings enough. Like they could feel when their leg goes down and if it's like kicking a wall or something. Um so I think I'm gonna go with the fiction being the nano engineered silver because I don't understand it. Okay, Jay.
0: <laughs> right. So the first one here about it says a pa a new paper demonstrates how it is possible to have negative energy. Yeah, the negative energy thing is not troubling me that much because one, it's, you know, physics, which um, you know, I will remind you, physics is weird and that lots of different things can happen. No, but to have negative energy, I, I think I could reason away Reason or find a way to to explain this. Even though I'm not a physicist, but you know, like when you say when you say something has negative energy, it means that it might be pulling energy from from something or whatever. I, I don't know. I just bet you that one is is science. I'm going to skip to the last one now. The bionic leg one. I have absolutely no reason to uh, to doubt that they have a uh, a force feedback type of you know feedback loop with a bionic leg now that can can let people walk blindfolded. Um, you know. I don't know why being blindfolded is that big of a deal I, I, and I admit that I don't know much about um, you know having a fake yeah, – So fake in other man, words, but, they don't okay. have to be able to see their limb in order to be able to use it. Okay. That's fine. Thank you for that. This one though, I agree with Kara that it, you know 42% stronger when you have nano-engineered silver, stronger than the strongest steel alloy, uh, right? I don't believe this. I really think this one is the fiction because I just don't think any version of – of uh, silver is going to be that much stronger than our our best steel. I just don't think the molecule could do it. So
3: I think that one's a fake. And Bob, negative energy, yes. Number two, uh, scientists.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, Good thing it went Bob last. Awesome.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean there there are there are Bob certain... Bob. You were doing great. Just go. You just do <laughs> Yeah, what are you doing, man? I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just gonna. No, I just gotta say that there's there's certain scenarios. There are certain small-scale scenarios where you could incur an energy debt that you would have to pay back, but you can have a little bit of energy debt, and that's negative energy. Let's see. Number two, nano-engineered silver, 42% stronger than the strongest steel alloy. No. I think this is fiction. I mean there's so many claims. Stronger than steel. Yeah, some alloys, but the toughest, hardiest. Most diesel alloys of steel, man, nobody nobody beats it, and someday we will, and I, we will probably use nanoengineering to do it, but I don't think we're there yet, and, and I don't think silver is going to pull it off necessarily, uh, so yeah, so I, I think that one's going to be the fiction, and uh, the bionic leg, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, a little feedback, yes, yeah, so you are now walking on a hard surface, um, or you, yeah, there's a stair in front of you, shouldn't be that difficult to have some sort of feedback. Uh, to uh, to 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 tell the the person that uh, you know what their environment's about in in some way. So that's my story. I'm sticking with it. So nano engineered silver fiction.
1: All right. So you guys are all in agreement. So we'll take these in order. We'll start with number one. A new paper demonstrates how it is possible to have negative energy. You all think this one is science, Bob. You sound fairly confident in your conclusion that this one is science. And this one is. Science yes. is a science, and Bob's what? Bob's right. I don't, I don't know if you knew this already if you read the article, yeah. but I,
3: yes to both questions.
1: Yes, you read the article because <laughs> you, you said it exactly correct that you can incur an energy debt that later has to be paid back, and the question is, do you have to pay it back with interest? And this is actually called <laughs> quantum interest.
3: Yes. So, oh my
2: <laughs> Wait, god. Wait, but is this like at like? net negative energy, or is it like specific negative energy? Does that it's, make sense? It's
3: small-scale negative, but larger scale, it kind of so, washes out. So right? this Sarah, is... you know what's coming next, yeah, right? you know what's coming next. This is
1: a... Quantum taxes. <laughs> well, this is a quantum effect. So what the paper showed is that <laughs> the, the the math is generalizable to basically quantum physics in general. That you can borrow energy locally as long as there is a very local increase in energy to offset it and in a entangled system. If quantum entanglement plays a crucial role at some point in space, for example, close to the edge of a black hole, then the, a negative energy flow can occur for a certain time and negative energy yeah. become possible in that region. Right. But they, they made a very specific point that improving that this is basically a generalizable quantum phenomenon that we're dealing with here that it, they also show that there is no free lunch, right? There's there's no right. zero-point energy. You cannot extract infinite energy from the quantum foam or whatever. Uh, you can't permanently take this energy away from the quantum state and, and leave a permanent deficit elsewhere. It's a temporary, fragile phenomenon that has to be repaid, and the conservation of energy is ultimately obeyed. It's kind of like I look at it it's like entropy, right? Like entropy. Yeah. Uh, the the thermodynamic states that entropy always has to increase. It's like, yeah, sure, but the but local, local entropy can decrease as long as it's being offset by a greater increase elsewhere in
2: the well, system. Well, yeah, that's, that's why I was connected. asking. Is it net or is it actually like specific to a wave function or a particle? Yeah, like, it's you specific. Know, that- it's
1: not – yeah, so net okay. energy. It's not
2: just like on the aggregate there's no. a negative amount of energy. No, because it has okay. to
1: be offset by an increase in energy somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but right? in the
3: future or, or at the same time? That's where it was a, li- a little com- confusing for me. But, yeah, it's um, quantum, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah one, way, <laughs> one way that I, I've heard it described is like it's, it's cool because it's like the universe looks away just for a moment. <laughs> looks away just for a moment. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, got a little away. bit of a debt. because the laws of nature. Because, yeah, because yeah, you're, yeah, you're like negative energy Jay sounds inherently impossible, right? But it's not. For brief periods of time in specific, very specific locations, you can incur this negative debt. So it's kind of like the universe is looking away just for a second, but then you got to pay it back. You got to pay that bastard back. There's no way around that. Uh, so it's fascinating. I read about this years ago, and it's such an interesting topic.
1: And they also found that this holds true regardless of any assumptions you make about any of the quantum theories. No matter what quantum theory you adhere to, regardless of what symmetries you think are real, this holds true. Uh, they also found that as well. So that's why they meant it's generalizable. Okay, let's move on to number two. Scientists have created nano-engineered silver, which they claim is forty-two percent stronger than the strongest steel alloy. You guys, alloy, you guys all think this one is the fiction. I'm a little surprised that that uh, none of you, especially the guys, didn't bring up that this is this would be mithril silver.
3: Wow. <laughs> I nice. I don't do know what do that
2: means, so I'm glad you said it.
3: Yeah. said <laughs> that's
1: why, that's why, especially the guys. Mithril silver is a mythical alloy that's stronger than steel but it's silver oh so you guys all think this one is the fiction and this one is the fiction yeah yay sweep that would be huge but
3: 42 based on a real
1: news item they did nano engineer silver and it is 40 it's 42 percent stronger than silver, than silver, yeah, than <laughs> the, the previous world record of the oh, strongest cool. silver. So this is the strongest silver ever by forty two percent, but it's not stronger than steel. Yeah, uh, and it, they did nano engineer it. So here's the, that's cool. Uh, but but the the cool thing is that the technology, the principles that they established can be can applied, be applied to yeah. other metals. So nice. they so there's, a, there's a general principle. There's a general principle that as the uh, the grain size or the crystal yes, size of metals cr- gets key. smaller. Key. The metal gets stronger. Right? Sure. That's the Hall-Petch effect, right? That Okay. You, you, as the, the, the metal crystals get smaller, the, the metal gets stronger. However, there is a limit, the Hall-Petch limit, where that effect breaks down and then the metal becomes soft. Mm, ductile. Also Ductile yeah it also at that point, conductive metals can lose their high conductivity
3: because you when start you to when get, you, exceed you that. start
1: to get imperfections in the metal, which would be which would block the flow of electrons through the through the crystalline structure of the metal right however, this is what they discovered so they took they took silver and then they added like a micro alloy of copper. And that's that's right. That's <laughs> right. And then they, so the copper atoms, which are smaller than the silver atoms, would fill the defects. And so by using that method, they were able to exceed the Hall-Petch limit. So they were able to get the oh. grain size smaller and smaller and smaller past the theoretical ordinary limit. And not and, lose strength. And not lose strength. In fact, the strength keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And. Without losing its conductivity, so wow. they made silver that was forty-two percent stronger than the previously strongest silver, and was and maintained its conductivity. So now you have a highly conductive, strong metal, which is very useful, right? Because so usually what? when you get you get you to it's you pick one or the other, right? Either pick conductivity or strength. You can't have. Can't have both. But this is a way of making
3: both. They're going to apply this. They're going to try this with steel now, right? So
1: now now they could theoretically apply the same technique. Oh, my God. Of of micro-alloying with specific elements in order to reduce the crystal size in order to make other metals stronger still. Um, And, of course, there's a massive uh, benefit to doing that. Obviously, if the metals are stronger, then you could use less of it. You could make planes lighter can have safer nuclear power plants. Um there's all kinds of uh, implications. By the way, this reminds me I read recently about uh Elon Musk is is starting to talk up testing his mm-hmm. his next rocket, you know the one that's going to replace mm-hmm. the Falcon The heavy. really big one. The yeah. really big one, the one that's going to yeah. be going to uh going to Mars. And you know what he's making it out of? Steel, right? Steel. Steel. Yeah. yeah. Which is heavy? Well, but he said. I mean, muscle first of all, he said. First of all, you could make it out of like carbon composite, mm-hmm. but but it's orders of magnitude more expensive than steel. Mm-hmm. And he said mm-hmm. steel has great
2: properties. You know, it's oh, cheap. it shields radiation, right? Yeah, it's like. So steel, yeah. it's
1: interesting that steel is still a cutting edge cutting edge material. It's still like one of the best materials we have. Musk is going to be making his super uber rockets that he's going to be sending to Mars basically out of steel. Uh, Jay, you would love them. They look so retro.
3: Oh my god, Steve, I'm they're
0: all so cool. I mean, I've been I've been following this. Just you know, I can't help but think there's a there's a twelve year old boy in here Yeah. That oh my god, he's like you know it's going to look like he built retro rockets yeah, yeah, for crying yeah, yeah. out loud. You know, like he he gets it. Yeah, yeah.
1: All right. Let's go on to number 3 a new prototype bionic leg has detailed sensory feedback sufficient to allow users to walk blindfolded this one of course is science and uh this is yeah the incremental advance in this bionic uh, limb technology what this is uh, what they did here is they have the 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 artificial leg which is an above the knee amputation prosthetic which is a which is a, another uh, advance uh but also um in terms of this kind of uh, feedback prosthetic has sensors on the foot and also sensors on the knee so that the user can knee. feel when they're touching <laughs> the ground and can also feel the extent to which they're bending the knee. Uh how you know what the angle of the knee is. And this is giving mm-hmm. and then they connect it to the nerve in the stump so that and they do what's called intraneural intraneuronal stimulation. So Mm -hmm. it's stimulating the the actual axons in the nerve. And that gives realistic enough sensory feedback that the users, at least in the prototype, feel like the leg is part of them. So it gives them a sense of ownership and that allows them much better control. It dramatically reduces the cognitive work they have to do to control the limb. And it it gives them enough sensory feedback that they they, they said they were able to walk both blindfolded and with like noise canceling headphones on so they couldn't hear or see so they were just purely on their sensory tactile. feedback yep. and it was enough that it felt more natural to them uh, and also it communicated to the nerves wirelessly so they didn't have to have a wire going all the way up the leg the sensors just communicated to cool. a wireless receiver nice. yeah so uh, yeah this steps is baby baby I know this this continues the incremental advance in uh in robotic you know prosthetic limbs and machine brain and machine interfaces not only can we con- they can you know control the limb but also the greater the sensory feedback the more it'll feel like a natural part of the body which yeah. will enhance control and make it feel more natural and reduce the amount of work that it is we're getting there and they're calling it a prototype bionic limb you know just based on the Bionic Man. <laughs> but, of uh, course. So cool. <laughs> very, very cool. All right. Well, good job, guys.
2: Thank you. Yay. Thanks, Steve. Easy no, one. I tried. No
1: one fell for my mithril silver.
2: Uh, <laughs> okay.
1: I'm going to do the quote this week because Evan is not here. This quote comes from Samuel Johnson. Do any of you know who Samuel Johnson is?
0: Why do I recognize that name? He is an English
1: writer. Not the one I was yeah. thinking of. So he is a poet, playwright, essayist, literary critic, biographer, editor, and lexicographer. Or was. Wow. Lived from 1709 man. to 1784. And he wrote, What we hope ever to do with ease, we must learn first to do with diligence. Very pithy. I like that quote because I. It's how the brain works. It's how the brain works. I've said that often to my daughters, but not in quite such a flowery prose. Like whenever they find something hard or challenging, I'm like, "Everything is hard at first. If you want to get good at it, you have to do the you have to do the work. Like it'll be every time you do it, it'll get a little bit easier. So Mm -hmm. you got to get through this. And you know, it's it's at least worked for the things that they enjoy. So like like when my when an older daughter, Julia, was first doing the piano, it was hard. And she's like, oh, this is hard. I'm not good. I'm like, just keep working at it. You'll get better. You'll get a little bit better every time you do it. And, you know, now, 15 years later, she's really good. <laughs> she's actually very, very good at playing the piano. She plays for her orchestra in college. So I like what is being communicated. It's unavoidable, first of all. And it, it's a good, it's I think, it's a good thing to live, to live by. hmm We get good at what we do. All right. Thank you guys for joining me this week.
3: All righty then. Thanks, We'll have a
1: full crew next week. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. This holiday, give the gift of hands-on learning with KiwiCo. Kibico makes learning about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math fun with projects designed to spark creativity, tinkering, and learning in kids of all ages. Kibico is offering the Skeptics Guide listeners the chance to get their first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kibicocom slash skeptics.